Partisan gerrymandering and a possible expulsion vote in the House. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of July 8th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. All right, Natalie, a quick hit on some of the news for the week, but we're going to mostly focus this episode, I think, on on gerrymandering, which is essentially uh, the process for reapportionment uh, to, uh, in a, in a way, I'll, uh, overstack the deck for for one party that's in control. We're going to break down Tennessee's history of reapportionment and the controversy it had uh, at the time in the 1960s when there was a lawsuit that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we're also going to talk about what gerrymandering is today in Tennessee and other states across the country. But first, a couple of minor things we want to, we want to, you know, mention on the podcast before we get going. Natalie, uh, first off, uh, last week, uh, probably the biggest news was that Gloria Johnson, Representative Gloria Johnson of Knoxville, Democrat, said that she was going to file paperwork or begin working on it uh, to call for the expulsion of David Byrd during the upcoming special session. Is that right? Yeah. So that had been the question. Will anyone file a resolution or attempt to file a resolution, even though the process is a little murky right now, uh, to to vote for the, for the House to vote on the expulsion of David Byrd during its special session in August? So, uh, as you all know, he's the lawmaker accused of sexually assaulting teenagers in the 80s. Uh, there has been question in recent weeks about uh, can the legislature use the special session as an opportunity to oust Byrd as it did similarly with Jeremy Durham a few years ago. Um, so no one had filed any kind of resolution to do that. Um, there had been, you know, statements by, uh, house majority leader William Lambert saying, you know, if, if the house was interested in doing that, you know, it's, it's not off the table. There is sort of a pathway to doing this. Uh, governor Lee had also said, you know, if the house wants to do that, okay, that's fine. Um, but no legislators had taken that step to file a resolution. Gloria Johnson hasn't actually filed it either, but she said last week that that is her intention, that she will be filing a resolution ahead of the special session to vote on the removal of David Byrd. Of course, if Byrd is ousted, he would be the second lawmaker since 2016 and only the fourth lawmaker, I believe, since the Civil War era to be expelled from the legislature. Uh, In other news, uh, Representative Mike Stewart, the House Democratic Caucus chairman, uh, held a press conference last week in which he said effectively... Uh, he wants to know where the money that House Speaker Glenn Cassida has spent uh, went towards. He wants to see receipts. So he has filed a records request with the Speaker's office asking for all kinds of documents on uh, their spending, time cards for uh, positions of people like Michael Lotfi, who Mike Stewart has repeatedly referred to as having a no-show job. Uh, he has also asked the Nashville District Attorney, Glenn Funk, to look into this case of no-show jobs. Uh, the, the Nashville House Democratic delegation had uh, asked Glenn Funk to do that several weeks ago. Uh, Mike Stewart essentially said they're going to follow up and reiterate to the the DA's office that they want them to open a criminal investigation into that. They also have asked the comptroller to investigate spending in the speaker's office and whether there was a misuse of state funds, which Mike Stewart is alleging that there was. And, of course, uh, to wrap up the weekend, uh, we had a presidential Democratic candidate here 
uh, that you ended up covering, uh, yes. Beto O'Rourke. Well, I just happened to be working the uh, weekend shift. We rotate weekend shifts here at the Tennessee. It's fun stuff. It's a great time. You get to cover the cops and all sorts of stuff. But it just so happened that Beto was in town. So I also uh, drew the straw to cover that. He is the third Democratic presidential candidate who's come to Nashville in recent weeks. We had Amy Klobuchar come several weeks ago. Uh, Joe Biden came. He he held a, a fundraiser, I believe. And then in a few more weeks, we're going to have Pete Buttigieg come. So that'll be four so far. Uh, Tennessee, you know, obviously isn't a super high priority stop at this point in the campaign for these candidates, but some of them are making their way here. On July 27th, the United States Supreme Court handed down two decisions related to gerrymandering, the process of creating legislative districts that provide a political advantage to the controlling party. Effectively, the two decisions led critics to say the Supreme Court gave state lawmakers across the country carte blanche to create extremely tilted district maps. Some view the gerrymandering decisions as a landmark moment for the Supreme Court. But in 1962, the Supreme Court had a similar landmark case in front of it, which originated in Tennessee. The case was Baker v. Carr and was referenced by the high court during its recent opinion in Rucho v. Common Cause. The case of Baker v. Carr began in the late 1950s when a coalition of plaintiffs filed a lawsuit against the state because it hadn't reapportioned since 1901. The Tennessee legislature is is charged with Uh, setting the districts for the House and the Senate in the state. That's former Tennessee Supreme Court Justice Bill Koch. And what had happened over time is that they had set the districts in a way where they heavily favored rural areas as opposed to the growing urban areas like Memphis, Nashville, Chattanooga, and Knoxville. And so what happened was the, the... uh, even though the votes for each member of the House and each member of the Senate count the same, the members of the uh, uh, House and the Senate were predominantly from rural areas rather than urban areas. The federal lawsuit eventually made its way to the Supreme Court in the early 1960s, with the High Court announcing its 6-2 decision in favor of the plaintiffs in 1962. The case was a watershed moment, says Koch. Oh, uh, uh, it, it was a, uh, a political sea change. <laughs> and, and certainly when you're allocating leverage in the political process, folks don't want to give up the leverage they have, so... Yeah, this was a huge deal, and it was not only a huge deal, urban versus rural, but you also had a very strong flavor of uh, uh, states' writers that were concerned that the Supreme Court was meddling in business that ought to be left to the states. The Baker v. Carr decision was significant for a variety of reasons, says Thomas Wolfe, counsel for the democracy program at the Brennan Center for Justice. There are a few different ways to understand the importance of Baker v. Carr. One is that it is one of the most important decisions in the Supreme Court's gradual move over the course of the second half of the 20th century into what was once referred to as the political thicket. So for a long time, 
the understanding on the Supreme Court was that courts didn't have any role getting involved in not just reapportionment, but really any kind of election disputes with the idea that these kinds of disputes created situations where the courts would be unduly overstepping their powers and potentially um, interfering with what really should just be questions of, of politics and things for the elected branches. Wolf says the Baker v. Carr decision also allowed the Supreme Court for the first time to really weigh into redistricting. You have that gradual move into election issues generally, and then it also laid the foundation for the court's involvement in reapportionment cases specifically, that is, cases that deal with the way state legislatures draw lines for districts for either congressional maps or state legislative maps. It also helped systematize this concept of the political question, which is a doctrine that has now played an important role not only in this term's uh, partisan gerrymandering cases, but also in in prior terms uh, with all sorts of questions involving things like national security or immigration. Many credit the decision out of Baker v. Carr as one of the driving forces behind ensuring that African Americans and minorities are equally represented in state legislatures. Perhaps most significantly, the case helped establish the principle of one person, one vote, the idea that voters should all have equal weight. When the court announced this decision in 1962, there were ramifications across the country. Tennessee had to reapportion for the first time since 1901, forcing two special sessions, one in 1962, another in 1965. There were also redistricting efforts across the country because the issue was not simply in Tennessee. Here's Harris Gilbert, who was a part of the Nashville Metro legal effort on the case at the time. We knew that we couldn't put it for Tennessee and say this works for Tennessee and that's the end of it. We had to get a nation, we had to make sure, to begin with, that the court would find this is a justiciable legal issue. And that is the phrase that is used uh, to take on a case and try to work out a decision in that framework. Gilbert says the case was necessary because of continued inaction by the legislature. You know, in Tennessee, it was so clear that they deliberately waited 60 years and we're going to wait another 60 years before they change <laughs> the composition of districts. And I think that that imperiled the court to take action. I mean, if it had been something that had gone on for 10 years or so, and if they, they'd still be in power. But they, they, after 60 years, it's the old issue, how long, how long? The Baker v. Carr decision also set off what is known in the legal community as the reapportionment revolution. Again, Thomas Wolfe. The, the reapportionment revolution signaled a, a moment in the Supreme Court's history where it indicated that it considered these kinds of line-drawing questions to be ones that the courts could get involved in and then started to create a variety of different legal rules to guide courts. While the long-term impact of the recent Supreme Court decisions on gerrymandering remains up in the air, it's no doubt that Baker v. Carr had a long-lasting effect across the United States. It's hard to understate the importance of Baker v. Carr because it really is the foundation for everything that has happened legally in terms of making districts more fair. Before that case, the courts were saying 
this is something we can't get involved in. We're not, we are not going to uh, dip our hands into this. After Baker v. Carr, with the court saying, no, these are the types of things that you can get involved with, and these things being how lines are drawn to ensure that people receive political representation. Once the court said that, you see courts all around the country taking these questions up seriously. You also see Congress starting to consider these questions a little bit more seriously, too. And from all of that develops a body of law that is created to ensure that we have legislatures that are representative of us and accountable to us, that are representative of the various groups in the country that deserve representation and are accountable to those groups. This week on the podcast, we have with us Shauna Huey, who is the president of Think Tennessee. That's a nonpartisan think tank here in Nashville. Uh, we're going to talk today about the Supreme Court's recent ruling on gerrymandering, how that's going to affect the redistricting in 2020 onward, and what that means for Tennessee. So, Shauna, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. First, tell us a little bit about what Think Tennessee is. Yeah, so Think Tennessee is a nonpartisan, results-oriented think tank. We're set up to serve all Tennesseans, and our vision is a state where all Tennesseans are civically engaged and economically secure. So, uh, I, I, for us this week, the big question is, why do you guys care about gerrymandering? I mean, this is kind of, uh, <laughs> it's not the sexiest issue to say the least, right? Are you serious? <laughs> I mean, it is one of those things that is hugely important, but it certainly is an inside baseball. I think you talk to the average person on the street and their eyes might just gloss over at this idea. So true. But it is very important. So, so explain to listeners, why is gerrymandering impactful to them? Absolutely. Um, and so let me, say, I mean, I think it's a great question. Why Why does Think Tennessee, why are we focusing on this? And we really are focused on driving evidence-based policies that strengthen the voice of voters. And this is precisely that. Um, and so if you're, you know, just somebody worried about kind of putting food on your table, getting your kids to school in the morning, how does gerrymandering affect you? Should you care about it? Absolutely. If you want your vote to count as much as somebody else in your state. So walk us through what the recent Supreme Court ruling was. Sure. Um, so Rucho v. Common Cause um, was the, sort of the title of the case, but it really was two different cases, from one from North Carolina and one from Maryland. And in both of those states, there had been allegations of partisan gerrymandering. And partisan gerrymandering is really when state legislatures draw lines to help one political party over another. And so in this case, it was Republicans in North Carolina and Democrats in Maryland. And so this is not sort of a one-party problem. Both parties absolutely gerrymander. I was just going to ask, so you guys recently did a report. I think it came out since the uh, uh, Rucho v. Carr ruling yeah, came out. Of, yep. And um, one of the things that I thought was interesting is you note that it's really not that gerrymandered in Tennessee, right? Like that is not one of the main issues here, but it's the transparency process. Exactly. Um, that, yes. that you seem to have an issue with. That's so, exactly right. So um, it, it seems that overall the concern that may have been what was in North Carolina 
in other states, the the central concern that they are very hyper partisan may not be the central issue here in Tennessee. But why is transparency an important thing for this process? Yeah, and let me just agree with what you said, Joel. So Tennessee's districts don't have the same degree of partisan skew that you see in states like North Carolina or Maryland. Does it mean we're perfect? Absolutely not. It just means that when you look at our state relative to some other states, we don't stack up as you know politically gerrymandered as other states. Mm-hmm. Again, doesn't mean that we're perfect. But where we really think, with given the Supreme Court's decision in Rucho v. Common Cause, states all over the country are going to be taking a second look at the way that they draw their legislative districts, right? And of course, states draw legislative districts both for our federal representatives and for state House and state Senate. So many states are going to be taking another look at their process. At Think Tennessee, we really see it as our job to make sure that our policymakers are all acting with the same set of facts and are, that the media and voters and everybody sort of at that same table thinking about what does our process look like and how can we make it better? And a way that we typically do that is just look at how is our process different from processes in other states. And what really stands out in Tennessee is our redistricting process is far less transparent than most processes in most other states. So we're ranked 40th for that. So back when uh, Tennessee last did this, so after the, the 2010 census, 2011, 2012, there was what, like one one meet public meeting yeah, before that's exactly these, right. these maps were drawn? Yeah. Um, Sounds like the legislative process. It was extremely <laughs> limited public participation last time. And that's where we think we can, we can just do a lot better. And there's a whole spectrum of solutions that have worked um, all across the country and not in just the usual suspect states. We really see states like Louisiana and Alabama and Missouri and Utah leading the way when it comes to increased transparency as part of their process. Do you, I mean, I wonder how much of that had been just the, the Republicans at that point hadn't been in power that many years, right? They, they'd right. just gotten it in the House, I believe, at that point. And so, uh, I mean, is the idea maybe that uh, they didn't know what to do? They, they may have been, I don't know, were they fumbling at the time and now it might be, you might have faith that they might be a little more transparent or, I, you know, why wasn't it transparent at the yeah, time? Yeah, I know. I don't think I can speak to that. And I'm, I'm sure that there are as many Democratic-led processes that are similarly non-transparent. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's necessarily a problem of party as much as it just is a problem of process. Mm-hmm. And so our job, we think, is to sort of lay out for folks, what are the different things that our state could do to bring some sunshine into the process? And it can be as simple as sort of publishing the playbook. This is what it's going to look like. Here are the meetings. You know, here's when the public is going to be able to be involved, maybe opening up more of those meetings. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of solutions, beginning with just what's the playbook and going all the way through to, you know, nonpartisan advisory commissions like we've seen in some other states. Tennessee does not have one of these independent groups. Is that right? We do not. Okay. And, and is, is there, you know, something, is that a position that think Tennessee thinks that Tennessee should go in that direction? Absolutely. Would it increase transparency of, of the process and increase citizen engagement? Absolutely. Is that a realistic solution? You know, I, I can't say that it necessarily is. What could be more realistic is simply, again, bringing some sunshine into the process, publishing notices, publishing notices about when the meetings are. Um, I'm sure the m- folks in the media would share sort of a desire to know what's going on in those meetings and under have some sort of citizen ga- engagement component. So in some states, like in Louisiana, they actually took into account the fact that although redistricting happens in the state's capital, 
folks deserve an opportunity to be civically engaged, even if they're outside of the capital. And so Louisiana took its redistricting process all over the state and had meetings in both rural and urban areas, which is something that we would love to see. Well, we saw that this year with Governor Lee's uh, state of the state, right? Or yeah. to that All point, three grand divisions. I mean, yeah. we, we've also seen uh, there have been, you know, Beth Harwell, when she was speaker, had this idea of this uh, healthy Tennessee project where she wanted to come up with a solution to, you know, Tennessee's being unhealthy and she traveled around the state Absolutely. at least that group did and heard from the people involved so yeah it, it is interesting why they wouldn't do that same thing with such a huge issue absolutely and and i think you know joel you started this off by asking you know does the average person on the street care about the redistricting process i think more and more folks are starting to know about the redistricting process and to care and to have this sense of, well, we want some fairness in this. And so I think the more meetings there are and the more accessible those meetings are and the more that transcripts of those meetings or videos live online, the more folks can begin to understand how the process works and to get engaged in it. So it sort of works hand in hand. And that essentially is the norm for the legislative process in general. Committee meetings are, for the most part, on the General Assembly's calendar. They are live streamed. They are archived. Uh, You know, you have some exceptions like pre-meetings and things like that, uh, which, you know, we have uh, made a ruckus about the session to no avail. Um, So, Shana, Talking about realistic solutions, what do you think is a reasonable time frame um, that the General Assembly should put out its uh, proposed maps, its its tentative plans in order to get public feedback before adopting something like that? Sure. Well, none of it can happen this year because it really all hangs on the census, right? Which so, is not done until December of next year. December of 2020. Okay. That's right. And so, and it really, you need to be done. So let's say last time we got the data from the census in about April of the year following the census, maybe March or April of the year following the census. And so let's say we get the data then, and you sort of have to wrap up that process the following year, because the filing deadline to run for those offices in, say, 2022 would be March, April. Right. So you've got a year to play with. And so in a perfect world, that whole year is open. Um, And, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have the answer that would be up to the legislature about how many months should this take us and, you know, which meetings should be open. But I do think that, you know, it, it will be the year from say March or April of 2021 to March or April of 2022, that this will really matter. It's also especially interesting given this time where everything seemingly is available online, right? So, uh, granted, these meetings may not be um, uh, easily accessible for a lot of people to come to, but y- you should be able to publish them online. In yeah, and actually, I mean, we use the Tennessee General Assembly's website. I'm sure you all do, too, yeah. all the time. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we will even, rather than going to the committee room, just stream those hearings. And so what if we could just do the same thing? It seems like such a small ask to a legislature that's already been pretty good about having an up-to-date website, allowing you to stream meetings. Just what if we could do the same thing with meetings about redistricting? To go back to the just changing, of possible changing of, of district lines, I mean, do you anticipate any major changes uh, either in the congressional, uh, you know, um, districts or on the state legislative level? I mean, I I don't think we're getting any more congressional district. Is is, is that right? I think it'll depend what that census says, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the question Mm -hmm. that we would really ask is, has Tennessee's population increased by enough to warrant another federal seat? Mm -hmm. So I'm not the expert on that. And I don't even know if we have the data that we would need to have to make those sorts of decisions. Um, But as for, you know, whether we're going to change those lines a lot, you know, that really remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. 
and looking forward, uh, have you all or do you all plan to have an audience with the next House Speaker, with the Lieutenant Governor, to talk about some of your concerns with this process? Like, what is you guys' role in affecting change in this process? Yeah, our role is really to empower the media and voters and the legislature to work with the same set of facts and understand possible solutions, and then sometimes to advocate for those solutions. Uh, and so, you know, as we, you know, we we put out this brief on the day that this decision came down. And that was really the first step in a process that, like I said, you know, will be going on through springtime of 2022. And so we see it as our job to arm legislators with the information that they need to do their jobs. And so part of that is understanding what have peer states done? What have Alabama and Louisiana and Utah sort of done to open up their process? And how might that be in their own best interest, in their district's best interest, in the constituents' best interest to make that happen. So absolutely, we see that as part of our job. After the Supreme Court's recent decision on, on gerrymandering, a lot of people uh, took issue with it. They said it's going to lead to more uh, partisanship. D- do you have a position on, on you know, uh, did you think it was a good r- ruling or or are you against it? Or w- what, what does the organization think? Well, you know, it was just such an interesting decision being that particularly in our state, Mm -hmm. right? Because we are that Baker v. Carr state, Mm -hmm. really the state that laid the foundation for the decision about one person, one vote. And so I thought, given our rich historic context around this, to watch that sort of one person, one vote, the idea that the federal courthouse door is open if you are a voter or a small town mayor who has complaints about gerrymandering, you know, I think you could really argue that Rucho v. Common Cause closed that door a little bit. Shauna, thanks again for coming on. We appreciate hearing your perspective. Uh, we'll we'll stay in touch with you guys Perfect. to see what you think is is happening with the process, if if any changes are going to come about, um, and what this is going to mean for Tennessee. Absolutely, thank you. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. You can find us on Tuesdays on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please continue to rate us as usual. It really helps. Uh, This podcast, as always, is produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. Thanks for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. We'll see you next week.